Joshua chapter 3 is a pivotal moment in the life of Israel. I'll read the entirety of the chapter. Uh, Joshua 3, the, uh, verses 1 through 17. Again, this is the Word of God. Let's give attention to it, even as it is read this afternoon. Joshua 3, beginning with verse 1, there we read, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out, set out for Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand, it shall, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground. And to all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Amen. This is the word of the living God. One Christian woman said to a teacher, asked really to a teacher, will you please tell me in a word what your idea of consecration is? Holding out a blank sheet of paper, the teacher replied, it is to sign your name at the bottom of this blank sheet of paper and let God fill it in as he will. Now I wonder... Brothers and sisters, as you think about that word consecration, how might you have defined it? How might have you have explained to another person who might ask you exactly what this word means? How would you have answered it? 
Literally, the word means the solemn dedication to a special purpose or service, usually religious. The word consecration literally means association with the sacred. Persons, places, or things can be consecrated, and the term is used in various ways by different groups. The origin of the word comes from the Latin word consecrat, which means dedicated or devoted and sacred. A synonym for the word consecrate is that of the word sanctify. And here, in this chapter, it is hard to read it and not see the theme of consecration being set forth in almost every syllable. From the numerous references to the Ark of the Covenant that is there in, 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 in numerous places as you read through it, that constant refrain, either the Ark or the Ark of the Covenant, keeps coming up over and over again. Not to mention the fact that early in the narrative, uh, God tells uh, Joshua to say to the people, and Joshua then says to the people, verse 5, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow The Lord will do wonders among you. All of these issues, all of these items, the Ark of the Covenant, the very direct command of the Lord and the Word of the Lord is designed as a means by which He sanctifies or consecrates God's people. And here, specifically, as He is about to do this miraculous work of parting the Jordan in a lesser way than He did with the Red Sea, but nonetheless miraculous, as he does this, he is demonstrating to the people that they have a unique standing with him, that they are different than all of the world, all the people of the earth. For the Lord of heaven and earth is going to bring them over safely to the place in which he has promised so long ago. It is here now that we see how the people are set apart in a unique way to serve Him faithfully as they go to take the very promised land that was offered to them, was promised to them, even going back as far as Abraham, their father. And the context of of this chapter is quite obvious, isn't it? It's simply the, the fact that the people of the Lord are going to cross the Jordan. They're going to do it in a miraculous way, nonetheless, but they're going to do it, but there's a precise manner in which they do it, And it's highlighted for us in this chapter, but all of it is driving us towards the issue that is central to the theme of this chapter, and that is the whole matter of God's love for His people in such a way that therefore we live set apart for Him with an eye always to the eternal rest that He has promised us. Not a rest of the Middle East or a promise of land that given to these is a picture but the rest that we really want and long for, and that is the rest of the new heavens and the new earth. And so I'm going to show you this afternoon that due to God's assuring love for His people, you are to live set apart to Him with an eye on your eternal rest. Always with an eye there. You take your eye off that, you begin to drift in the reality of the things of this world and become enamored by the things that are going on in this world, you will suddenly find yourself in great misery. God's people must always remember that due to God's assuring love for them, they are to live set apart to Him, for they are different, always with an eye to the eternal rest that's promised 
for God's people. Three points as we consider the bulk of this chapter this afternoon. We first consider the preparation in verses 1 through 6. The proclamation is given in verses 7 through 13. And the perfection, okay, I'm trying to stick with the P's, verses 14 through 17. The preparation, the proclamation, and then the perfection. All highlighted here in this narrative account of the people of God crossing the Jordan. Let's first consider the preparation as seen in verses 1 through 6. There's a command given immediately there as Joshua rose early in the morning. They set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel and lodged there before the people. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now, presumably, and I think by good and necessary consequence, we can infer here that the, the ones, the, the officers that are going through the camp, as they go through this camp, they are not simply speaking their own words to the people. That in some sense, in some way, God has communicated to them the means by which they are to cross the Jordan. The means are not uh, what we would say normal. There are some specific things that are given to us in this command. The biggest one, of course, is that they are to follow the Ark of the Covenant. They are to, as it were, stand behind it and keep its distance of it. They are not to get out in front of it. They are not to go on their own way and do their own thing, even as the text tells us in a little bit, that they have not gone this way before. And so they don't even know the way. They must follow the very ark of God. Now, the question, of course, is this, as this is a central theme of the entire chapter. What exactly are we talking about, and what is the whole point of referencing the Ark of the Covenant, and why is it so vital for the people of Israel to follow it? Well, simply put, as you know, the Ark of the Covenant was that furniture, that piece of furniture that sat in the very Holy of Holies, in the, very, in the tabernacle itself. It is, as some scholars will argue, and I would be one of them, though not a scholar, but argue that it is the very throne of God on earth. It is his place of his dwelling. It is the place of his presence. It is that central place there in the most holy place in which he would come and meet with the priest once a year. It is a picture then, therefore, of the very presence of God that is to lead and guide the people of God. Even the Israelites believed that it was the throne of God. And as it represents his presence, then therefore, note that they are to follow it. They are not to get in front of it. They are to stay behind it. Two aspects to this that are vitally important. First, they follow it because we, even as Christians, even as they were to do, we are to do, we as we prepare, as we do battle, as we are laboring on in our lives, as we prepare with an eye to our heavenly rest always, we are not to follow our own doing. Our own ways, our own works, our own efforts, for they are faulty and they are usually bathed in, 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 in silliness and not often very wise. Solomon himself in Proverbs chapter 3 says to trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding of things. In all your ways acknowledge him, he will guide your steps, he will direct your paths. 
Thus, we follow the Lord's purposes, the Lord's will. We follow his directives. We stand behind him as he leads us through the affairs of this life. Now, we find that, of course, given to us in his word. For where else are we to find it? Uh, We find that directive. We find the, the means by which we are to follow him as expressed in Scripture, Uh, both in your own private Bible reading, but really to the point, more to the point, and really connected very clearly in this chapter, uh, we do so whenever the people of God gather corporately and hear him speak through an ordained minister of the gospel. That is to say that insofar as that which God commands in his word is then reiterated by the servant of the Lord, It is as though you then, therefore, get in line, get behind, and follow the mandates of God. Imagine if the people here, as they prepare to cross the Jordan, decide, you know what, I don't like that plan. I'm going to do a different thing. I got a better idea. What does that dumb officer know anyway? Who does he think he is? By the way, that that actually happened once to Moses. Uh, and you remember the story of those yo-yos who challenged Moses' authority. Well, they didn't live long. Imagine had they done that. They'd still be on the other side of the Jordan waiting to cross. Because God is not going to be mocked by people. When he gives directives, when he gives commands, he expects his people to obey them. And so the ark represents the presence of God. The directive is to follow it. But notice also there to follow it at a safe distance. Verse 4. The command is given, and now the consecration of the people begins. It is a corporate consecration. They are to follow the Ark of the Covenant from a distance. Why? Because the holiness of God is there. That Ark represented it. Remember the story of David and his, and his uh, well, I forget the guy's name, but whatever it was. Anyway, he's bringing the ark back, and it was on a first mistake number one. It was on a cart. That was wrong. It was supposed to be carried by the priests, and it was supposed to be carried by poles. Okay, so there's mistake number one, but God was patient. But then, was it Uzzah? Okay, so what does he do? Well, the, 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 the oxen stumble, the Cart's about to topple, and, and he, with all the best intentions in the world, reached out and touched it. And he died on the spot. David was actually bitter about this. But it highlights for us the reality of the, of the ark and its presence that it represents, the very presence of a holy God in which man cannot dwell without a mediator. So God warns them, look, stay, keep your distance. Don't get awfully, don't get too close to this. The same injunction was given to the people of Israel in Exodus 19 when he told them not to get too close to the mountain. Why? Because if you do, you'll die. Why? Because God is on the mountain. That's why. And so this corporate act comes. They are to consecrate themselves Because that is a holy God of which we must maintain a certain distance. Now, in the New Testament, we are thankful, of course, that we have been drawn near to him through he who is the high priest. We are able to enter into that very presence now 
through the work of Christ, and we can boldly enter into the most holy place, and we can pray, and we can offer our needs and concerns. We can do that day and night, wherever we may be. We can do that without fear, even, that we might be struck dead in the very presence of God. But here the people are called corporately to consecrate themselves. They are, in a word, to act in a manner that is best described in, as worship. For it is impossible to consider the very presence of God in their midst without it leading to worship. One of my professors in seminary often would tell us, and just to keep us, remind us that as men training for the ministry, the fact is is that we are going to study a lot of theology. We're going to study a lot of it, all of its intricacies, ins and outs and twists and turns and all of its everything. And it's so easy to get lost in just the facts and lose sight of the God who stands behind it. That is to say that all theology leads to doxology, at least it should. And as we see the theology of the ark and its picture of God's presence, it should lead us to worship. And so as we come to worship each Lord's Day, we come to meet with he who dwells over the ark of the covenant, the very holy God. We prepare to do that even as the people here are preparing to do that. Verse 5, consecrate yourselves to, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Every Lord's Day in this place, God is doing a wonder. I know you might question that. You look behind me and you don't see, you know, uh, well, one elder wants to stick a fog machine up here. I told him, no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We're not doing that. You figure out which one it was. That's a joke, by the way. He meant it as a joke. We don't have fireworks going off over this building. There's not a big marquee sign flashing in neon. Frankly, we don't see a whole lot of anything going on except pretty simple, ordinary things. But God is still doing a wonder. Why? Because the Word of God will never return void. And as God's people prepare to come and hear and worship the God of heaven, they should expect God to do great things. And, well, He does. I could tell you a story, and maybe I will. Well, I'll tell you it anyway. You're not doing anything anyway, so just listen. Charles Spurgeon, talking with his friend in London. His friend was bemoaning the fact that he didn't see any converts in his worship services. And Spurgeon wisely asked him, well, do you really expect that to happen? The friend said, well, you know, I guess not. He goes, Spurgeon said, that's your problem. See, we don't really expect God to do great wonders. And then we wonder why we don't see them. We must expect God to work and to act and to do that which he said he was going to do as we gather here, as Joshua tells the people, for God will do great wonders in your sight. Consecrate yourselves. Be prepared. Recognize what you are about to witness tomorrow is like nothing you've ever seen in your life. And indeed, he accomplishes that very thing. And so as we prepare to worship the God of heaven, we should prepare faithfully ahead of time to do it corporately but also individually, for even this corporate expression that's given here in verses 4 through 6 of consecration is full of people, individuals that are doing it. That is to say that all of life is worship, not just today. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we are always to live, quorum Deo, the Latin, before the face of God. We are to do that in a, a way in which reflects our love for God and our recognition of Him as God, the God of, of, of all the earth, even as 
Well, one of the verses says, and I don't remember exactly which one it is, but anyway, it's in there. But it should be done in a relationship to our finances and how we manage our money, how we interact in our relationships, how we govern our families. As to say that, do we move our families to worship and home and family worship and other types of activities? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Imagine if these people, as they were told to follow the Ark of the Covenant, uh, decided to seek something else. You know, uh, I'm, uh, dude, this is better. They'd have drowned in the Jordan. And so we must, as these people, as we prepare to enter our heavenly west, we must heed the commands of God, recognize His holiness, See his presence as we worship him. Prepare for that, but not be afraid of it, because God has invited us to be very much in his presence. Second, there's a proclamation, verses 7 through 13. There is a proclamation. The Lord said to Joshua, today I'll begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. Now the Lord is speaking. He comes and he says to Joshua this thing. It's given to Joshua, but what we note here is that God is beginning to exalt Joshua in the sight of the people. That is to say that before honor comes humility. Joshua is not an arrogant man, presumably. He is a man of, uh, of the word, Joshua 1. He's a man of, uh, who has zeal to walk faithfully with the Lord and to do whatever the Lord commands. Is he a perfect man? No, of course not. He wasn't a perfect man. But he was striving through all the means that God give, gave to him to walk humbly before his God. You see, God does not prosper the proud. I know you might think, wait a minute, I don't know, I see a lot of arrogant people in Washington well, it's not over yet. The, the game has not been played entirely yet. The game is still running. The matter is still unfolding. God does not prosper the arrogant. He does not prosper the proud. They will indeed have their ruin. They will have their end. Uh, whether in this life or the life to come, but in either case, they will never ever advance to any place of honor because they are not men of humility. And in order to be a man of humility, you must know your state, your place, in the face of a holy God who is in their presence. Joshua understood this. He was exalted. He was promised to be exalted. He reduces the arrogant and proud to ashes, but he exalts the humble of heart. But there's also, in verses 9 through 13, an encouragement given to the people. An encouragement given to the people. Imagine if you were told to cross the Ohio River. Now, I've been on the edge of the Ohio. I can't see the bottom of it, and it looks pretty far going across. And I mean, even though I can swim, uh, I don't know. If someone told me to cross the Ohio, I'm not sure I'd be all that willing to jump in and go. Besides that, it looks pretty nasty. But this is given to the people, verse 9. This encouragement of God himself. Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. 
Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us the benefits of those who are justified, who are made right in God's presence, who understand who he is. They are adopted, they're sanctified, they have an assurance of God's love, they have a peace of conscience. They have all of the promises bestowed to them. Joshua said, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out all those ites that are there in the list. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And we know what happens. As the ark enters into the Jordan, it opens, it stands on a heap, and the people safely cross in fulfillment of the promise that God has given to them. Joshua encouraged them. He tells them, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, and this is what he's going to do. Now, God does that today for us. How is it we know that God loves us? Well, we have his word. It tells us. The problem for us is that we doubt uh, far too often, and when we start having those doubts, we need to remind ourselves of the propositional truths of the Bible. God loves me, that's it. The word says it, I believe it. God has placed an eternal love upon his people here. He's placed his eternal love upon his people here in this place, and we must heed that and listen to it, believe it. There will be times when we don't because we are creatures of dust and our emotions go sideways, but we cannot trust our emotions. We must trust in that which God himself, who cannot lie, has said. He will, without fail, drive out from before you the da 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 ites. Third, there's a perfection into this entire narrative. Now, that's my made-up word, I think, in a sense that I was just looking for another P, probably not the best word, but anyway, you'll understand. Verse 14 through 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood up, stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down in the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea. They were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Two things to note here. There's an obedience. Consecrated people set apart for the work of God, demonstrate it in obedience. It's one thing to say I'm consecrated. It's one thing to say I'm set apart. It's one thing to say I'm I'm being sanctified by the Lord. Prove it. Is there fruit in keeping with repentance? Do you have the marks of one who is following behind the Ark of the Covenant? The people did as they were told to do. Imagine if they had refused. They would not be where their God was leading them. There was only one way across the Jordan. It's interesting, isn't it? If you don't think the Bible has great connections to each other, here's one. There was only one way across that Jordan River. They weren't calling the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to build a bridge if they did not exist. There was one way, and it was the way God was, had instituted. And that is the way it's going to happen or it won't happen. 
There's only one way to the God of heaven for all men. And that is he that the ark represents in the person of Christ. That's the only way across the Jordan. You can't get over there any other way. If you don't have Christ, you don't cross. If you don't have Christ, you're hopelessly lost. There is only one way. And that is the way that God has instituted himself. God's people willingly obey because they have been set apart for him and assured of that by the love of God in the promise fulfilled. The world rejects this way. They say, no, thank you. I've got other plans. There must be other options. There isn't. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. And that's a universal negative, by the way, in case you're wondering. That means there's no exceptions. No one comes to the Father but by me. Let me change the verse, and with all due respect, to the context of Joshua 3. I am the way across the Jordan River. I am the truth in that you listen to my commands and do what I tell you. As you do, you will have life. There is no other way across the Jordan and into my presence in the promised land, except by the way that I have instituted. And the people understood that. We, too, must understand that. The only way to the God of heaven is the way that he has given it to us. The result, of course, is that they enter into the promised rest. They enter into the land of promise. Now, they haven't taken it yet. They're on the outside Not all that far from Jericho, frankly, not all that far from when Jesus was baptized either, very significant. They got work to do still, but they cross faithfully into that land. But figuratively, and to the point of the narrative, it is a picture of our entrance into our eternal rest. There's no other way, brothers and sisters, to get there. None. It's not by your efforts or your good looks or lack of looks. It's not by how much you serve the church or how many sermons you've preached. It's not by whether you, work, you serve on the session and been doing it for 50 years or 50 days. It's not whether you're a deacon. It has nothing to do with any of those things. The only way across is through the new Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And as we follow him, then we will safely cross. As soon as we deviate from the plan, we will be hopelessly lost. And so the people, they've consecrated themselves, they've prepared, they've made ready to meet with this holy God just to keep their distance, as it were, at this time, to follow the ark, the presence of God, across the Jordan in the way in which he has instituted it for it to happen. He does so, and they arrive safely to their heavenly rest. Two things as we wrap up this chapter. Categorized under first, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. One, Christ himself prepared for his ministerial office. He grew in stature as he moved closer to his formal ministry. That is to say, he consecrated himself in the service of his Father. Christ was indeed consecrated publicly for his people at the Jordan River. This is my beloved son 
as priest, and therefore he leads his people across the Jordan River. This is why I'm not convinced that there's any way you can argue that Jesus was immersed. The people were not immersed when they crossed the Jordan. And if this is a picture of Christ who is consecrated and leads his people across the Jordan to their heavenly rest, then where is the immersion in the entire event? There is none. Third, Christ, through his humility, was exalted, Philippians 2. Fourth, Christ was assured of his Father's care and love for him, just as he assured the people in the plains of Jericho of his love for them. Christ obeyed, fifth, and through his obedience, sinful men, sinful man were made perfect, set apart holy before God, thus assuring his people of their eternal rest. The great high priest assures his people of their promised rest. It's not you, it's not me, it's him. Now, how does this relate to you and to me then, therefore, as we think about this narrative and we think about how it relates to the work of Christ? First, the Father has assured you of his love. How many different ways must he tell you that he loves you? He comes right out and says it in Scripture. You are the apple of his eye. You are his chosen, treasured possession, his chosen people. He has placed his favor upon you, has demonstrated his eternal love in giving to you the Lord Jesus Christ. In times of doubt and worry, we must remind ourselves of that truth that will never change. Look, I know I have those days. You have them too. You have to remind yourself, the God who's placed his love upon me will never stop placing his love on me. I cannot outsin the love of God. Therefore then, as a response, consecrate yourself to him. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes Keep his commands. Second, the Father, through the Holy Spirit, has assured you of his presence, even as they were assured on the plains of Jericho of the presence of God in the, in the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. He does that corporately every week. You look around this room, I don't see the Shekinah glory of God. You're right, neither do I. And if you told me you did, we'd have to have a different discussion. But that doesn't change the fact that he is here, uniquely different than he is with you during the week. Corporately, prepare for that, to meet with him. And then do so also individually. Be bold, don't fear, trust his promises. And then third and finally, the Father through the Son has guaranteed your safe passage across the Jordan River. You question that? Where is the threat of death for the believer? Christ has conquered that. He will carry us across the threshold, the Jordan, as it were. He will take us safely home. We need not fear or worry. He brought the people of old across the Jordan River. He can bring you across without any problems. And so, frankly, it ought to make us happy. It ought to make us joyful. It ought to make us rejoice in the reality that Aside from the failures that I'm going to offer day after day to my God, who I long to love with a perfect love, he's not going to dunk me in the Jordan and drown me. He's going to bring me safely to my heavenly rest. And so, consecrate yourself before the God you say you love. Prepare to meet with him. Seek to follow him in obedience. 
recognize His presence is always with you. And as that happens, He will lead you safely home. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the hope and the comfort it gives us even in these narratives. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us by your word, that we would not grow weary doing good, and we would always be reminded of that eternal love that will never change for your church, for your people. May it move us to consecrate ourselves before you. And may it give us great comfort knowing that you are for us, you are with us, you will never leave us. In these things we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.